one of the biggest learnings I had halfway through this journey of transformation was that we always say you can't do transformation to people because you're just going to get organism rejection. And we saw a little bit of that early on. And one of the things that made the biggest difference was wherever we had a squad taking an exec level sponsor from another division or another department and making them a sponsor for that squad. So it wasn't always me saying, I really care about squad X and I really care about squad Y. You know, if we had a commercial growth orientated squad, the commercial director was the sponsor of that squad. So it stopped being, we're having it done to us. It became a, oh, okay, we're all in this together. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Rico Surridge, who's currently Chief Product and Technology Officer at Witch, the UK's consumer champion, offering independent advice and reviews alongside raising awareness for consumer rights. Previously, Rico has held product leadership roles at the BBC and ITV, where he helped transform their digital offerings in pursuit of great user experiences. Hi, Rico, how are you today? Hey, Axel, I'm very well, thank you. Pleasure to join you on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this and sharing your experience. Before we deep dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been up to till now? Yeah, sure. It'll be a pleasure. So as you say, I'm Rico, I'm Chief Product and Technology Officer here at Witch. I've always been a really very kind of product-centric and predominantly digital product-centric person throughout my career. I started off in consulting, which was great. I actually really enjoyed getting that breadth of experience across a range of in different industries, different organizations, different ways of working. I've done a bit of time at various startups, a bit of time with some PE-backed places. Most of my career, as you say, has been in the video on demand space. So looking after BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, and some of their related services. Love iPlayer. It's, oh, it's, a great, <laughs> it's a great service enjoyed by so many and does really good work. I think the content that's available for all ages and genres is brilliant from the BBC. And now I'm here at Witch supporting the consumers, which is fantastic as well. Thank you so much for that. So two things for people who don't know about which. Can you tell us a little bit about which its role in the UK? I can relate because I've had a chance of living in the UK for five years. So when, when we first talked and I saw that you were leading a transformation at which I thought this is super interesting because I know the role which plays in the UK, super important. And then after that, can you please tell us a little bit about your role itself? Because you mentioned your chief product and technology officer, right? So Witch is a big brand here in the UK. It's a very familiar brand. It's been around for a sort of 65 years or so. And it does a number of things. It serves a number of audiences, but it's very much in pursuit of making life simpler, fairer, and safer for UK consumers. So primary audience are consumers across the UK, and we provide a subscription-based and free-based digital and magazine offering that talks a lot about product reviews and product advice and service advice and helps consumers make good decisions about where they spend their hard-earned money. We also then spend a little bit of time with the businesses supporting wider industry standards and industry understanding of how to make good products. We've got an endorsement scheme, which again, will probably be quite familiar to those in the UK. And then we also spend a bunch of time lobbying and working with the government here, sometimes to improve laws, sometimes to help provide advice and guidance and work very collaboratively with them on behalf of consumers 
to make sure they're getting the best deals and the safest deals possible. Fascinating organization before I segue into the role, because I think one of the interesting things about product is it, it means slightly different things to different organizations, but the way in which you apply it is slightly different in different organizations. And so having imagine. spent a bit in with startups and things like that, coming into an organization that's 65 years old, probably not so dissimilar from working at somewhere like a BBC, it's reasonably large. It's done things a certain way for a long time. It moved quite early into digital in actual fact, and there are pros and cons to that. And so maybe we can chat about that a little bit in a second, but that whole digital transformation piece in a really mature, established organization is interesting. But you touched on the CPTO piece. Correct. I heard people say both things. So on one side, they would say it's a role that's coming more and more common. And on the other side, people say, this used to be a common role, which is now disappearing. There's like different schools here. Tell us how this happened, right? Did you envisage this role as a CPTO role from the start? I joined, which is chief product officer. That's my mainstay. I did do a degree in computer science, always been fascinated by technology and obviously the two deeply intersect. But no, I joined a CPO through, for a number of reasons, the CTO role freed up. And I had a bunch of conversations with our CEO about it at the time, spoke to a number of other organizations at the same time as well, spoke to some CPOs, some CTOs, and some CPTOs. And like any good product person, did a bit of research and got a breadth yeah. of perspective. He did your discovery. Exactly. Did my Got a breadth of perspectives on it and came away from that with the notion that if you're an organization that's maybe e-com or generally B2C, that the core of your product is probably technology enabled, but not technology in itself, then actually there's a lot of benefit to bringing the two roles together. I think where you've got a product offering or an organization that is intrinsically about that piece of technology, Google DeepMind or something like that, it's fundamentally about the tech and the software that's being built and put in place and lots of bespoke engineering going in there. I think there's a really strong case for a CTO and probably a breadth of very senior technology and engineering roles there. In a probably more mainstay business, the sentiment I took away was actually bringing the two roles together was quite a sensible thing to do. And I've got to say, since doing that, I think for me, the pros probably do out, outweigh the cons. And I'm tending to see a few more of those roles appear now. I think you're right, it has been an evolution where they were generally bundled together. They were then split apart as the world tried to understand what product really was. And I'm now starting to see it come together a little bit again. I think on the pros, it definitely takes away some of that kind of unhealthy, unnecessary organizational friction. And there's healthy friction, right? And yeah. Possibly the other side to that coin. You absolutely want the challenge, you want the deeper understanding of each respective discipline to be able to have really constructive conversations about what to build and in what way. I think that's a surmountable challenge in that mm -hmm. I've got a fantastic director of engineering, got a great engine set of engineering managers now. And so we can have those healthy tensions and healthy conversations about what we do. But I think pros wise, definitely having the two together, it makes for a smaller exec co. And I think True. smaller team, it's easier to make decisions, having conversations about what way are we going to operate and things like that are made slightly easier. I think it is, for me, the pros definitely out the way the cons. I think some of the other challenges perhaps are that it is quite broad. I'm responsible for- Yes, there's a lot of people product, as well, right? Product managers, the delivery managers and the various elements of that, product design, be that UX kind of UI design, the T-shaped roles that we have here that make up the two, all the engineering, front-end, back-end data, et cetera. 
how, how many people in your organization? Sorry. It's just a little over a hundred, but I'm also then responsible for all the corporate IT, everything from the laptops to the Wi-Fi and the offices <laughs> and, and then our kind of infosec function as well. And so the breadth of that means I certainly don't have the capacity to go deep on all of those areas at the same time. Yeah. So you have to pick and choose where your depth of focus goes, but it's good. I've got a great team here. I'm very fortunate. We've got some awesome product managers and some awesome engineers and we're doing some really good work. Very purpose-driven organization, which helps to get a lot of like-minded people together. But no, I think CPTO role for me is a good move. I'm glad we're not looking to unwind that. I think it's it's been the right decision for Was it a hard sell? Was it an easy conversation? How did that go? It was relatively straightforward in many respects. We looked at the role profiles. We put together an options grid and really thought about the pros and cons of the different ways in which we could structure ourselves. And not just at the exec level, but then the impact that has on the, on team. the team. Yeah. And then there's loads of great books out there like Team Topologies and things like yeah. that talk about the difference between the hierarchical line management structure and day-to-day yeah. -day operating teams. And so being very conscious of that in the mix as well. I think once we, we laid out the options, we talked it through and gained a range of external perspectives on it, the pieces fell into place. You talk about healthy tension. I think it's really interesting, right? Two things I picked up in what you explained in this role is that it's very important. I suppose this is true of any role you want to structure in a product organization, but Particularly here where you don't have a CTO, it was important to find a very strong, reliable director of engineering, right? Because suddenly you have technical people, so software engineers, developer in tests, way, platform engineers, et cetera, who ultimately, if you are the CPTO, report into a non-engineering person. So it's important to have this engineering figure, somebody they can relate to and can maybe coach them and elevate their practice. How have you found setting this in place? Was this on your radar from day one? How did you go about that? It was very much on the radar from day one. I think you're absolutely right. One part of it is you need the credibility in order to be able to have the conversations with those teams and have them put their trust in you. Yeah. You defer as many of the decisions into the team as possible, but ultimately mm -hmm. you're standing up in a lot of forums representing them at times speaking on their behalf. And so I think they need to have that trust in you and believe that you understand their roles, the things that they do and represent their interests. And then I think you're absolutely right. You need to be able to make sure you've got the right people that can help develop their career, understand what's important to them, understand what's important for the engineering of the product in order to make it as good as possible. And, and the same goes in reverse. I think if I'd right, been right. More, more engineering focused, I think we would have needed to done that on the product side of things. I'm lucky I've got a great head of product as well. So we've got lots of credibility here. <laughs> one of the one of the big reasons people join us is evolving their career. We talk about it as a place to come and learn mm -hmm. how to do products and do good product engineering. I think then from my perspective, the thing that helps is having done a certain amount of software engineering in the past, yeah. not loads and loads, but enough to be able to understand and empathize with a front-end engineer or a tester or something like that. We're really going to end up in a situation where we go, ah, we're not going to worry about the performance testing or the accessibility. We'll leave that thing to last. That's, that's never really going to happen with us. Yeah. Being able to talk to those teams on their level yeah. about why we measure some of the things we measure and why we mm -hmm. do need to spend a little bit more time ensuring the quality of certain things is right because mm -hmm. that is going to enable us to 
move faster or learn quicker as we go forward is really important. I think one thing that I find really interesting is the role which plays in the UK. And like you said, it's an organization which is 65 years old and you're coming in on the CPTO role. What's your mission? What have you been tasked with? Yeah, that's a good question. And what I was tasked with and what ended up perhaps then happening maybe <laughs> things. So, tasked with really thinking about how we make sure that which is still as relevant to all consumers as it was 65 years ago today. Yep. We know it's a very different country out there. There's different consumer behavior, demographics, different ways of buying. Just about everything is different from it was 65 years ago. So ensuring that the product offering we put out there is relevant. And a big part of my remit, particularly when I first joined, was helping the organization as a whole think about being more product-centric, being more user-centric, what that means in practice to kind of day-to-day -day ways of working, how we spend even more time thinking about our feedback loops and the speed of those feedback loops from the services that we put out there. And in and around that, uh, finding a way to grow as an organization. Now, which is a not-for-profit, so we have a profit-making business, but it all gets plowed back into the offering and some of the campaigning work that we do. But we still fundamentally want to grow. We want to grow in order to help more consumers and ease some of the decision-making that they have, whether they're paying members or not. Now, in practice, when I joined, it was, I really focused on ways of working. We really focused on the team, particularly getting the senior team, made quite a number of changes there, tried to upskill then the organization as a whole on ways of working, design thinking, squad operating models, things like that. And that went well, and that's taken time for an organization course, that yeah. has been around for a while, has done certain things for a while, and is under the hood quite a research-orientated business. We spend mm -hmm. a lot of time testing products, and the, the right level of rigor and time that goes into that isn't necessarily immediately conducive then to rapidly iterating. And so that, that was the remit and all of that took place. I think as I picked up the T part of the role, what became evident to me was that the technology estate that supported which at that time, a couple of years ago, was disproportionately complex relative to the product offering people have out there. And now we know that's a really familiar story. Whenever we talk yeah. to people that work in established organizations, we hear people say, oh man, it's really complicated to get anything done here. We've got three systems where we only need one system. And it was that was absolutely the case, but which far less so now, I'm glad to say. But if, if anything, a little bit worse. It really was disproportionately complex. I think that's because they moved into digital quite early. There was an acknowledgement of it and they tried a whole bunch. I think it was an ISP at one point. Like it tried a whole bunch of different things and technology is a function morphed and evolved over the years. And so we ended up with some siloed bits of team. We ended up with some bits of tech that have just been left to rot. And so really a large proportion of the last two years, we've had very much a mantra of just simplify and modernize. So, you know, a couple of examples of that. And again, these are pretty familiar with other organizations I talked to, but two years ago, we had more than 30 instances of content management systems. Wow. I just try imagine trying to maintain those, create any kind of a consistent or cohesive experience across all of those. Each of our content editorial teams having multiple things to log into, trying to copy and paste things between them, nightmare administratively, and then has knock-on impacts to performance, accessibility. And you're trying to do a good job of that when you're trying to do it across all those systems is a nightmare. So we've massively rationalized that. We've fundamentally got one for digital, one for print now. More than 80% of our 
web traffic now goes through that single digital CMS. We've got a really nice design system that has been built ground up with accessibility in mind, thinking about how we can reuse components in the best way possible. And that is the enabler for the good A-B testing and our ability to go, actually, we're going to tweak this thing in this module here. And then when it's right, we'll just roll out everywhere and be kind of omnipresent. And that's a really powerful thing to do. Similarly, just across our estate, we have had to simplify things. We've often had instances where we have three or four survey tools because we've got lots of teams. That are, we've got a UX team doing some UI research. We've got a content team doing consumer product research. We've got a call center that's doing contact center feedback type surveys and things like that. And so rationalizing those makes a big difference as well. So lots of simplification. I think the biggest challenge then is when you're presented with an estate that complicated and it feels like you're constantly walking uphill through treacle with someone throwing rocks at you, is how do you continue to innovate in parallel and how do you continue to keep people motivated and excited about the future? Do you feel stuck, not knowing how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs and raise your product game today. Check out panache.io, that's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. Before we go down this rabbit hole, which is a really interesting one. So you arrive at which you start with CP, CPO role, evolve into the CPTO role, and get responsibility for all of the engineering and IT stacks, have to deal with this crazy amount of complexity. You are walking around with the mantra of simplify and modernize, trying to rally people under this banner. One thing that I was really curious about is... At which point does the transformation element become this thing that you have to deal with? And at which point do you think, I need a recipe to deal with this? How did you go about this? Did you have a strategy? Did, you know, had you seen this movie before? Like, how did you go about saying, right, we have to deal with this transformation. This is how I'm going to tackle this. And transformation in its own right, of course, is a little bit of a misnomer because you're never really in a state of being transforms. It's not an altogether bad word because I think there are milestones and hurdles and there are defined periods of time when you're probably focused on it a little bit more. The first thing is getting the organization to realize that it's an ongoing investment. We don't spend a certain amount of money and have a certain number of people do digital for 12 months and then <laughs> we're transformed, we're done. So we <laughs> go about our days. So that was probably the biggest initial thing was just understanding where are our areas investment? Where are we going to stand up long-lived teams, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to a recipe, I did a few things. I think, first of all, I just spent a little bit of time, a week or so, just observing, understanding the estate, understanding the teams. And I've got a page of metrics that are very subjective, but I just use to create rapid assessment of how a business is doing. And I use the really classic pillars of people, process, technology, and data to do that and put a score of one to 10 out under a number of metrics underneath each of those. 
And that paints a really quick picture of the areas that we need to focus on. For us, it was definitely in the technology space where we were really hurting. I then got a few, a couple of consultancies in just to spend a few weeks going really deep on that to in part have a depth of experience where mm-hmm. we didn't have it, in part to provide an external perspective on things and in part enable our governance structure to really have faith in what is fundamentally quite a big shift for the organization. And right. so always, I think there's a time and a place and I think consultants are really valid when deployed in the correct way. And I think this was an example of that where yeah. we could have written down a strategy and we could have gone off and done some stuff, but I think we could also have easily been questioned six months in. We're overly focused on deep migration of our CMSs or something like that and go, no, no, Rico, we really we need to focus more on this thing over here. I think having a little bit more of that upfront thought, and I do mean a little bit, was really helpful to us. Created, created alignment, right? Yeah. One of the other big things we did when I first joined was establish OKRs in the business. Yeah. And do that in a really genuine way. And very much a journey. It's taken a good amount of time to get into a healthy state with it. It is truly about what is the focus of the organization and how do we get everybody aligned around the right metrics? It's not a one department, one division, or one a couple of teams are doing Correct. OKRs. Yeah. It's OKRs at an organizational level with mm-hmm. leadership teams setting two or three annual objectives, and then the teams writing their own quarterly OKRs that ladder up to those. A little bit of validation to make sure that they're sensible and appropriate due diligence and conversation around mm-hmm. them. The teams writing and owning their metrics that will help deliver against the organizational strategy. So I suppose combination of the OKRs for the true focus and alignment around what are the right outcomes to solve for, then the framework of people, process, technology, and data to help ensure that we've got some of the right building blocks and fundamentals right in order to be able to achieve those OKRs is broadly how we approached it here at Witch. Okay. That's super interesting. I think it makes a lot of sense, certainly on the focus and alignment part with OKRs. We had this conversation recently with our friend, Richard Russell, who's now a coach and coaches companies in how to use OKRs, a former Google and Amazon exec. And he talks about the fact that a lot of companies get this OKR implementation wrong. And even though it's a journey, there are do's and don'ts, for example, replicating sets of OKRs across the organization. That's a big don't, right? A lot of people will have organization OKRs and then suddenly different business units and teams have their own sets of OKRs. And these things don't like tally up together, which is a bit strange. So we talked about that and thanks for picking that up. That's super important. And I think having, it's interesting how you say you had your own kind of markup of your strategy of looking at these pillars of people, process, technology, and then data. I think most people in these that are given these transformation heavy roles sometimes lack point of entry. Like they don't know from which angle am I going to attack so this problem? Right. Yeah, exactly. Is this something that grew over time? How did you inform your own recipe? Yeah, I mean, with that, it's, it's just grown organically over time, having spent a bit of time in different organizations and having seen some of the things that work well and some of the things that don't. And It is reasonably high level. It is very much subjective. So it's important to acknowledge that. But there are some things that we know just make a difference. Like speed of deployment. What is our engineering pipeline? What's the health of that? What's our speed of deployment? If we observe that and that's really poor, then actually we can be greater 
incident management and accessibility and these other things. But actually, if we can't get stuff out, we're not really going anywhere. And so it just breaks down. There's some real human elements under the people stuff, like how are we doing in terms of career path frameworks for individuals? How are we doing in terms of our pay and salary type information? In process, we've got what's our operating model like? We use a, what is probably now a fairly understood squad operating model, the classic yeah. kind of three lead type roles. Yeah. In fact, one of the maybe interesting, one of the, the biggest learnings I had halfway through this journey of transformation, mm. and it's obvious once I'd learned it and been through this journey with the other execs in my team, was that we always say you can't do transformation to people, like, because you're just organism rejection. And we saw a little bit of that early on. I think one of the things that made the biggest difference was wherever we had a squad, yes, it would be cross-functional. And from time to time, we'd include your content person in a content-focused squad. The thing that probably made the biggest difference was taking an exec-level sponsor from another division or another department and making them a sponsor for that squad. So it wasn't always me saying, I really care about squad X and I really care about squad Y. You know, if we had a commercial growth-orientated squad, the commercial director was the sponsor of that squad. So it stopped being eminent us or- As versus them, yeah, correct. We're having it done to us. And it's not that commercial owned that squad and they told them what to do. We're together in the same boat kind of thing. Exactly. We're all in this together. The area might be having a exec level sponsor that kind of is living it and breathing it and is going along to the check-it. And that's the other biggest thing actually is all of our squad check-ins are open invite. Anybody in the organization can come along hear what they're doing, have a conversation with them, challenge them, provide inputs. Everyone from the CEO to somebody in a different squad or whatever, whoever it might be. The combination of that and having an exec sponsor just made a huge difference, I think, for us. That's really insightful. Thank you. I think a lot of organizations I've seen or worked at, there was this idea that, you know, stand-ups or product reviews or events like this are usually quite open and anybody could attend. The reality is most times people from the higher levels of the organization wouldn't actually come. And I think one of the things you describe here, which let's give this team somebody from the exec team who can act as a sponsor for them and probably also a direct channel into management, right? And leadership is, can be quite empowering for that team. It flattens the conversations. Yes. It's empowering. You take out the Chinese whispers. It just in, enables things to happen far quicker and in a far more transparent and therefore trusting way. And I think it, it makes some of the difficult decisions easier as well. I think what, another thing is when you inherit a really complicated estate, mm. you can't not leave some areas rotting and burning. And that's really uncomfortable. Like the team responsible yeah. are really uncomfortable about it. The sponsors, everyone will look at something that's consumer facing and go, oh God, we're embarrassed by this particular thing, but it's probably not the biggest priority to fix at that moment. Right. Worst thing is when a stakeholder is kind of throwing rocks at something and going, that's rubbish. And the team are going, yeah, we know it's rubbish. We hate it too, but it's just not the priority right now. It's far better to have that conversation up front as well. And everybody's Correct. going, oh, okay, we know part Z of the website is not the priority. <laughs> None of us are happy about it for all these reasons, but we're going to stop beating up on the team that are responsible for it. Because actually, they're focusing on this other really important part A over here, which we really want them to focus on. So I think that's, I think transforming a, an organization that's been around for a while is a tricky thing to do. And getting everybody on the same page and taking some of the emotion out of it, having the difficult conversations up front, that's what a lot of it's about, I think, for me. I'm just looking at 
my shelf now and I'm looking at this book. I don't know if you've read it. It's The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. Yeah. Yeah, which is a great book. And I just remembered, we haven't talked about this, but so you're coming to this role, which is a big role. It's a big responsibility, right? How are you thinking about your first 90 days? Did you actually think about this and think one of the advice Michael Watkins gives in his book is make sure that in your first 90 days, you make a big change. And I, he has a name for this. I don't know how he calls it, but it's like this big hallmark change, which is there's a new person in town kind of thing. Did you have something like this? And how did you think about taking the role and what the first 90 days could look like? Yeah. So I, first of all, I promise this isn't pre-contrived, but actually our CEO gave me that book or certainly recommended that book the day I took up, took up the role. So yes, I have very much have read it. And it is very pertinent to this moment in time. The first thing I did was did a one side of A4 pretty much akin to the book and wrote out what the plan looks like and broke it into chunks of 30 days. Because as we know, we want to be able to iterate. Yep. We don't want to wait till day 89 to find out stuff isn't quite going to plan. We need to be able to have those routine conversations as we go. And so, yes, I did think about it. And it was a useful thought process to go through. I think for me, what's important, and I say the same thing to the squads when they first stand up, is it's not necessarily that it has to be a big thing, but I think you have to be able to demonstrate a win. Like you have to be able to demonstrate through some form of delivery that you've said that you're going to do something and then succeed at doing that thing and build uh, incremental levels of credibility and then build incremental levels of trust through that act. So I steer away a little bit from a do one really big, really influential thing. We did do some things like that. Implementing the squad model felt quite big. The OKRs were quite, we did quite a lot of big things in that sense. But when it came to delivery, actually, I think the things that made the difference were the smaller wins. And some of those were really small and actually quite intern, just drawing the estate, drawing the high level technical architecture of all the things that we've got. That's not even a consumer facing piece of delivery, but Putting that on a piece of paper and taking that to our governance board and saying, this is what we're dealing with and have them go, oh, wow, we've always been in a bit of a, in a, bit of a black box. We've never seen this before. That's really interesting. We've now got a better understanding, a greater level of empathy. A team level, just getting something out there. I can't, I'm trying to think of a good example of something we did early on. We made a bunch of decisions to remove our legacy mobile app. We implemented mm -hmm. a new one. It's also we about did, killing things. This is a good point. It's not always about shipping new yeah, stuff. No. Sometimes it's about killing the old stuff. Yeah. And we certainly did a bunch of that. And you're, you're right. It's demonstrating that you can do that. And it's not quite as scary as you think it might <laughs> yeah. be. Like we had a, this is a slightly more recent one, but we had a large consumer focused forum on our website, kind of bunch of chat forum type functionality, relatively low engagement. We recently took the decision to close that down. We moved it to a Facebook group. We've seen engagement and members of that significantly increase while the cost of being able to do it yeah. increase. And everyone was really scared about that decision before. We I couldn't possibly take away this forum that's been here for X number of years. We couldn't possibly do it on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, in practice, we could and we did and, it, and it's gone very well. We've had similar areas of the website that have been built over the years where we've gone actually... When you challenge something, we've got two developers that are the only developers that can write in that particular language and service that particular part of the site. And actually the cost benefit to what we're providing consumers doesn't really stack up. Either we're going to close it and get rid of it, or we're going to port it over to something else. So yeah, we've switched a lot of stuff off. I think there's still more we can switch off, but I'm <laughs> in my list. Yeah. I quite like 
neat and tidy. But yeah, I think definitely delivering and building credibility yeah. is important. And being able to measure that roadmaps always feels like a little bit of a dirty word sometimes. I don't mm. think you need certainly outcome-centric roadmaps, I think, are very important in order to show trajectory, whether you're in my role or heading up a squad or a content team or whatever it might be. I think being clear on your three-year strategy and the, the outcomes you want to drive over three years and then in a shorter period, what your tactics might be in order to achieve those is is really important. I think whether you're an individual or a team, you can represent it in that way and share it with them. I'm a bit of an open book. Like all my objectives that I collaborate on with our CEO, my personal objectives are all in a Google Doc. That's open for anyone in the company to read. There's kind of nothing hidden in that sense. Somebody wants to know what it is I'm really focused on and what's driving me. Anybody can read that and see yeah. that. Transparency um, so is important. Yeah, it's really important. Going back to what we were talking before we, we dived into this topic of big change in the first 90 days, you were talking about different dimensions of transformation and how there's the transformation work itself. And while doing this, it's quite healthy to have a parallel track of innovation. And you were talking about how do you keep teams motivated and engaged? So how did you go about that? Yeah, and that is easier said than done. And I think we probably had examples of where we were successful at that and where we were less successful at it. It's not easy. I think we have been ripping up in one fashion or another just about every single part of our estate over the last couple of years. If I take another consumer-facing example, we had a big monolith kind of CRM, subscription management, payment management type system, mostly bespoke. We've had it for a very long time. It's almost old enough to vote. We're ripping that out and replacing that with a bunch of bought configured systems that are sensibly abstracted and will set us up much more neatly for the future. That's a really big piece of work. You're taking something really complex and bespoke, unpicking it, replacing it with new without having an interruption of service. And you've yep. got to take a group of people that you've hired with all this positive intent around where you're going to work in squads and you're going to own your objectives and you're going to have the freedom to be creative and innovate. And then you go, oh, but we just got to get this massive boulder out of the way first. And so I suppose we've done a number of things. One, we have been really transparent. When we, with our existing people, with the people that we hire in, we're always really honest about where we are on our journey, the types of things that we're trying to achieve and some of the challenges that we're facing. We try to give people the ability to work across both where we're sensible. So in, in that example, we were running a bulk of that migrationary piece as a project, but we then had a squad who was ultimately going to take responsibility for the future state systems that were set up. They were still doing a certain amount of iteration on the existing system, knowing that that would be throwaway, but they yeah. were they were still iterating on the join and registration journey, seeing what might work in the future in a relatively light touch ways, not over-investing in it, knowing that most of that would be thrown away, but trying to learn as much as they could, as rapidly as they could with what they had. And then also spending a portion of their time with the team that was supporting the delivery of the future state systems and really being the stakeholder, the kind of lean-in, hands-on stakeholder for that delivery. And that took a bit, that, that has taken some learning and some adjustment in its own right. 
Initially, that felt a little bit like we had a number of suppliers that were telling a squad what to do. That felt a little bit uncomfortable. And in some instances, actually, that was right because they were the experts in those particular pieces of technology deployment. In some instances, that wasn't quite right because they would do things either they'd done for 50 other clients that hadn't really considered some of the ways that which are unique or some of the insights that the team had. And so getting the right dynamic between those groups of people that are doing the same thing, but approaching it from slightly different ways was a complex, something that was certainly worth investing time in. And then making sure that you've got everything else around the day-to-day work that keeps them interested and keeps them engaged, be that, hey, look, we're a purpose-led organization. Here are all the initiatives that we're doing that are beyond your team, but are doing good for people in the UK. Feel good about the organization that you work for. All the stuff around kind of career path frameworks, upskilling, training, supporting development, making sure people have got mentors and all the good stuff that says you're in the wars now with this particular piece of transformation, but man, are you learning a lot? It's almost like an enablement. So we talked about empowerment earlier, which is how do you give teams problems to solve and how they can own their own objectives and their own priorities and objectives that can then roll into the organizational OKRs. That's super important. We talked about autonomy as well. And from what I'm hearing now, there's also this enablement part as well, right? Like how do you give the teams everything they need so that they can actually do the job and learn from the job and grow in the organization, right? And that's a really important yeah. piece. It's really important. And again, I think it's really difficult to get right. Again, you see so many organizations, it's so hard to genuinely empower a team and trust in them and have that be reciprocal. And I think getting the guide rails right is the key to that. And again, we haven't always gotten it right in the past. I don't think anybody does, but setting the the limits and thinking about the risk appetite statements and, and being quite Netflix, pretty famous for having some published yeah. risk appetite statements to say, you can experiment up to X percent of risk with members and like, go and do something crazy. But if you risk more than X percent of members, rethink it, think about how you can chunk that up or do it in a different way or try something else. And having that conversation with teams so that they really can go, This is the outcome we're going to try and drive. Mm -hmm. These are the five initiatives that we've got. We're going to have conversations with our stakeholders. They're going to come on the journey. We're going to talk about it. But ultimately, we own this and we're going to try and drive this thing forward. And then having the stakeholders go, yeah, okay, we've agreed on the outcome. We think these are a sensible set of initiatives to try. We don't know which one's going to win out. I might have a preference. It might be that three weeks, five weeks, six weeks into that thing, we find out that really didn't work and they kill it and pivot on something else. And having the relationship where that's okay and everybody's on the same page with it sounds so easy. To, maybe it doesn't. It's easy to talk about. It's not. Yeah, sure. It's all. It's also the gift of hindsight, right? Like, yeah. it's always easy to look back and think we've accomplished a certain number of things. But when you were in the doing... It wasn't necessarily easy. If anything, most of the times it, it's not easy at all. So yeah, I can completely relate. You can't turn up somewhere and expect that all to happen on day one. I think even yeah. if you've done it somewhere else and you go, I know exactly how this is going to work. You can't Context change. And- yeah. People change. Yeah. yeah. It's, you can't just copy paste the same formula. I completely get that. Somebody recently talked to me about this concept of freedom through constraints. And she was okay. talking about how, just like you were mentioning, how do you put these guide rails and constraints so people know in which 
constraints they can effectively operate. So once you've set the, the boundaries, people maybe feel more free to go and actually do things. You mentioned the Netflix example, I think it's a really good one. And yeah, that completely resonates. You also talked about how to build up this momentum in the organization so that people in the teams, the squads themselves have incremental gains, right? Like they're constantly shipping something and proving something. How did you think about giving the team this ability to iterate and solve user problems? Maybe that's it's obvious being a product person, but I'm a huge fan of really understanding the problem space or stating the problem space here. What is the problem? What is the biggest problem that we need to solve? Thinking about that in an outcome, measurable, metric-driven way, and then acknowledging that there might be a number of different ways to solve for it. I always talk a lot about thin slicing. I think, again, MVP has got a bit of a bad rack. <laughs> yes, but that the underlying notion that you take an end-to-end -end slice that functionally works, that is of good quality without being overly feature rich or doing more than it needs to, that proves that what you want to do works end to end and then allows you to test something in market. I think for me, that's still the key to an awful lot of success. And the misinterpreting of is quite often then what leads to failure. So you'll see some people that do a thin slice, something, put it out there, but they won't have invested sufficiently in quality and rarely get two chances with the users. If you use something and it just doesn't work, they're probably not coming back. You might have 10 features where it really you only needed it to do one thing well. And if it did that one thing, then they'll come back and maybe that when they come back, you'll have done two things well. And so I think genuinely slicing things up and incrementally adding value as you go, not only, I think, gives you a certain amount of that momentum over time, but it also then prevents you from over-investing. Like you can go, yeah. oh, we're on we're on slice three, we're still not seeing any traction with this thing. We need to rethink it or we need to do something else. Yeah. And taking people on that journey, I think, is really important. Before we wrap up, we're coming to my favorite segment of the show, which is the treasure chest, where basically I ask guests what has really worked for them, things that have made a significant change in their careers and opportunities that have meant that they've learned a lot of things in a relatively short amount of time. So... I'm going to start with the first question. What are some of the most helpful resources you've used to deliver impact as a product person so far? Yeah, great question. We're in a great place now where there's lots of fantastic resources out there like this one. You know, the quality of content online about product in particular is in a different league to where it was 15 years ago. Yeah. So simply Googling it, you get a lot of great results right off the back. There's the grandfathers of these things like Silicon Valley Product Group. Absolutely yep. love Marty Kagan and all of his work. Big supporter and purveyor of that. But there's loads out. There's such a great community around it, whether that's Mind the Product or other places. There's great resources. I think for me, the thing that I've learned over the last couple of years is that one of the greatest benefits of writing some of this stuff down for yourself is that it forces you to really think about it. And so I write a blog on product stuff. I'm not saying that's a great resource necessarily. I hope it is. But it's I'm, going in the show notes now. I'm going to put the link so people can have a look at your articles. I've read a few of them. I found them quite interesting, to be fair. That's good. Thank you. But for me, that's it's quite a reflective process. So I would actually encourage everyone at any stage of their career to write a blog because I think the very act of stopping, thinking about what they've done over a period of time writing it down, then being brave enough to put it out there in the real world and solicit peer feedback 
is a scary thing, but shouldn't need to feel like a scary thing because actually it's quite a kind of raw open thing that says, this is what I've yeah. been doing recently. And this has been my experience of it. What other experiences have you had mm. and allow people to build on it? Uh, Thinking through writing, definitely. Well, I'm a big fan of it. I do quite a bit of writing myself and it's been a huge game changer. And I think it helps you grow because it creates opportunity for conversations that would not have happened if you hadn't exposed a little bit of yourself, put yourself a little bit out there. So that's super helpful. Yeah. And I think you can do that at any stage of your career. I think week one in your first experience of working in a squad, your experiences of that are just as valuable. Writing about those so that somebody else can read about them and go, oh, okay, that's what that was like. Maybe I'm not alone or maybe my experience is really different. You don't need to be a seasoned professional. Exactly. My second question, what would you say are the key accelerators in your career? Accelerator. Interesting. So I think, I think the first thing I would say is just going out and speaking to people internally or externally, asking the questions, you always want to encourage people to put their hand up in the room and go, actually, I have no idea what that acronym was, or yeah. I didn't quite understand that piece of corporate strategy. And I, I remember back at early stages of my career at ITV, I can't remember what the question was. I was pretty junior product manager at the time. And I remember not quite understanding something that the CEO at the time, Adam Crozier, stated in a big a company with three, 4,000 people at ITV. And I dropped him an email back within about 20 minutes. And that, that had such a profound impact on me. So I was like, wow, look, this CEO for this major company that makes billions of pounds a year has taken the time yeah. to respond to the question from lowly me and it's <laughs> then comprehensive and makes sense and answers the question. You're like, okay, so that had a big impact on me because it made me realize that actually, if you don't understand something or you want to do something, then you just need to ask. And actually, yeah, nonsense of the battle is asking. If you want to work in a different squad, if you want a promotion, if you want to learn about a new topic, just ask. Because the worst that's going to happen is someone will go, no, or actually maybe next year or go and think about this thing in a different way. So I think the biggest accelerator for me has been just getting out there. And I think I say that internally to the organization that you're working in as much as externally. I think one of the biggest benefits I've had over the years is having a great network of mentors, having a real range of those, being able yeah. to go, have the brain trust, get the five different mentors. Yeah. yeah. Well, have slightly different lived experiences and put pose a topic to them and get the five different perspectives back. Because and I say to anyone that I mentor, I always say like, this is my experience, this is what I think, here's how I think you, I would encourage them to think about the problem. But I would always say, and go and get somebody else's perspective as well, because like my way is not necessarily going to be right for you in every of problem. Course, yeah. The diversity of thought, right? It, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, for me, that's the thing that's probably accelerated it the most. I think you have to live it as well, though. You can't, you can't over accelerate. You need to live it and breathe it for sure. Last question, what advice would you give early career Rico? What advice would I give an earlier version of myself? More sleep, because you're not going to get more <laughs> over the next couple of decades, either through being a product manager or through having young children. Yeah, um, or both, yeah. <laughs> or both, because neither are a straightforward role. Outside of that, I think it would be probably that point that we've just talked about. And to the mentors. It. Yeah, do that even earlier because I think it it's just so valuable being able to call on a group of people and have those sounding boards and that reflection yeah. time and that advice 
and be able to draw down on that experience. And people are so often so willing and so happy to. Yeah. And I found time. this to be true, particularly in the product world as well. Yeah. It's, a, it's particularly over the last couple of decades, it's as a discipline, it's come along so many. There are, you can go places and get a product management career path framework. You couldn't really do that 20 years ago. That didn't do right. Yeah. It was or something like that. Like it just didn't really, or Marty, there were, most of that wasn't really written down anywhere. That's a good example. I remember just early doors emailing Marty Kagan. Again, somebody that just emailed back within about 24 hours. He's good um, at his, he's good at his emails. I have to say always, we had this chat in back in May when we met in London for the coaching, the coaches session. And he said he has this personal discipline where and people who are listening to this and who have emailed Marty before will know this. His personal rule is respond within 24 hours if he is working, if he's not up or anything. And to have this level of discipline, I think is quite inspiring. It is in certainly inspiring. It's incredible. And so that sort of thing, that, ha that has a big impact when you realize you've got a problem and you email someone and they go, actually, hey, yeah, we've experienced that before. This is how you want to think about it. You go, oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to go and do that now. That's, yeah. So that's what I'd tell a young Rico. Just keep emailing people. Keep asking questions. <laughs> Never stop doing that, and it never it never changes. When you're on ex in an exec co, there's always state, there's always higher levels, right? It never, yeah. There's always holders or yep. PFA, whatever it might be. There's always accountability to, and so you've always got to keep asking those questions and keep seeking guidance and getting the perspective of the person that you perhaps never had the perspective from before. Brilliant. Rico, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. Loved your story. Good luck with everything you're doing at Witch. We're really curious to see some of the changes the organization is going to bring to, to Witch and its uh, digital products. And yeah, hopefully we get to speak soon again on Product with Panache. Great stuff. Thanks, Axel. Speak soon. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.